The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another wild one for markets. Stocks pinballed from surge to slump as investor fears over the coronavirus battled hopes over the potential policy response. After sitting on the sidelines, central bankers finally started stepping in. For the first time since the financial crisis in 2008, the Federal Reserve issues an emergency 50 basis point rate cut. We spoke about the move with Torsten Slock, chief international economist at Deutsche Bank, and asked what this action opened the door to. Well, the issue, if you take it in combination with the G7 statement, it wasn't very specific in terms of what might be coming. So it leaves a little bit of guessing. But what was more specific was that the OECD yesterday, in their update to the economic outlook, it did have a list of things that could be done on the fiscal front, supporting those sectors, tourism that have been hit, supporting also the health services sectors in those countries that are harder hit. So there are some things on the broader scale of things that it is clear that they are thinking hard about. But we didn't get that detail in the G7 statement. And of course, exactly as you're saying and as you've been debating all along, it's basically not a monetary policy problem. So that's also why some of the issues that we are all talking about is exactly what is coming in terms of details, because this is really not a problem that can be solved with monetary policy alone. You say it can't be solved with monetary policy alone, and I think everyone would agree with you, including Chairman Powell himself, who cited other other entities that have to act, including first and foremost uh, public health authorities. Nonetheless, the Fed has its job to do, and part of the, its job is to maintain price stability and maintain full employment, and to the extent that the virus threatens the economy, it is a threat to the full employment side of its mandate. What does it need to say going forward beyond just, okay, we're going to cut rates in response to market conditions? What does it need to establish now as its operating procedure so that it's not just forced into this reactive thing and next thing you know, it's down to zero and it's out of ammo? That's a really important question, Joe, because if you think about what happened in the reaction in the stock market today, one interpretation is that people see this as a sign that there was something that the Fed uh, saw that the market didn't see. Another interpretation is that they, they really do think that the economic outlook has deteriorated significantly. And we're not quite getting from the press conference exactly what he did say was that, well, we think that this is good for now, and we think the policy stance where we are right now is enough in terms of thinking about what will happen for the next meeting. So he was signaling that no more cuts will be coming for now. And I think to your question that, therefore, what we're waiting for is now we need to see some economic data. Is this actually as negative as we are all fearing? Or is the economic data potentially holding up? And unfortunately, non-farm payrolls on Friday is not going to give us much. But looking ahead, 
the answer to your question is that jobless claims is the number one variable that we right. are watching because this is such a critical variable leading into what will happen for the labor market. So, Torsten, part of the reaction, though, that we had today was seemed to hinge on his comments about the Fed's toolkit and this idea that that might not be enough, or at least... And I mean, he didn't specifically say rates specifically, but there was that sense that you have to have something more than rate cuts, whether that's, I don't know, QE, whether that's fiscal stimulus. He didn't specify. What is it? Yeah. So I I think I don't think he meant to say that this was QE or forward guidance or some other uh, non-conventional tools. I do think that he is trying to say that this is fiscal policy that has a problem. In other words, QE will not solve the coronavirus either. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the question then becomes, what could it be? And what the OECD did discuss in their report quite carefully yesterday was that you could actually give targeted support, not just give a tax cut to everyone or just have more government spending, but give targeted support to those sectors that are those sectors that are most in need of support. And this could, of course, be most importantly health services, but it could also be everything has to do with tourism and different sectors that are affected, uh, transportation globally, Mm -hmm. of course, including in Europe, that would be benefiting from some temporary support because of these uh, negative impacts that we're seeing at the moment. All right, Torsten, uh, what can we expect? There was some sense here that we were going to get some sort of coordinated move the same way we did back in 2008 when all of the banks sort of cut, or most of the banks sort of cut at once at the same time. We didn't get that today. Is it reasonable to expect we're going to start to get these cuts from other banks over the next couple of weeks? So we're really flying blind when it comes to the economic data because we just don't really, this really is a story that only evolved. Remember only 10 days ago, two weeks ago, we were at all-time highs in the S&P 5 and now we're certainly here sitting about what can governments do, what can governments do. So in some sense, we need some evidence in the economic data. And this cannot just only be anecdotes from companies that things are deteriorating and potentially they need to deteriorate and we need evidence that they're deteriorating significantly if it warrants such a significant reaction. So I think we're still seeing both monetary policy around the world in wait-and-see mode, and I also think politicians and fiscal policy, even with these targeted ideas of supporting specific sectors and even supporting specific industries, is something where we need just more data. We just need more evidence that this is actually something that is more serious. Assuming that you can trust the data from the different countries that have already been affected by coronavirus, it sounds like, it seems like China is starting to recover, right? The number of cases there is uh, fewer than what we're seeing outside of China. And of course, uh, the country's hard at work to try to get people back to work. And in fact, I look at WEI Go on the Bloomberg World Equity Indexes, and what it shows is that the Chinese stock market is actually up for the year. Uh, The Shenzhen market, look at that, up 9.6% year to date. How do you read that, Torsten? So I read that as investors saying in this uh, small game of uh, whack-a-mole that uh, some things are actually coming back up. And we're basically seeing improvements, broadly speaking, in those areas where it all started. And that means that the Chinese outperforming investors are probably saying, well, maybe it's contained now in Asia, most importantly in China. And with that, then maybe we're now moving in the direction of those countries that have contained it the best. We'll see better performance. So there's almost a sequencing in terms of how bad is it in different places. And those places where the second derivative of the number of cases is beginning to roll over are probably the cases that will be performing better exactly as the data you just pointed out is suggesting. Would a recovery in any place, whether it's China, whether it's here after the worst of our um, virus cases peak, would you say that we have the potential for a sort of V-shaped recovery once people find out uh, or once people feel comfortable that it's on the decline? Or is the psychological damage and the actual supply chain damage such that even when people do feel comfortable there's just an incredible amount of wreckage still to sort through before we can get a sustained recovery. 
That's a really good question, Joe. But I do think that the damage both done to the supply side and also to the demand side in terms of more caution and sort of more fear, generally speaking, globally about what does this mean? Should I hold back consumption? That is going to take some time to repair. So another way of saying that is that the sentiment effect, the fact that we need to have confidence back up again, is probably going to take some time, potentially at least a few weeks and potentially a few months before we get to the other side and everyone is convinced that now this problem is behind us. So therefore, it is unlikely that we get a V-shaped and quick recovery, meaning in the next few weeks, it will probably take into Q2, in our view, before we begin to see a more meaningful, significant recovery where things go back more up to normal on the economic indicators. Okay, so Q2, before we start to see the beginnings of a recovery, if we're being optimistic here, what's the number one question clients are asking you, Torsten? Well, as usual, it's all about the issues of how long time will it take for the issues in terms of the virus being gone, and that's, of course, no one really has a good idea about that. But I think that the most important thing that we in markets now can spend time on is try to figure out what is the policy response. I may not be good at predicting what the virus and epidemics will be doing, but I have a much better idea about that the policy response, as we spoke about earlier to your question, Romain, here, is about, well, the policy response could come a lot sooner. And the policy response is very, very important for markets because that will be supporting potentially both in terms of monetary policy, but also fiscal policy and potentially to specific sectors that might get some support, of course, will be very important for both confidence and also for those sectors specifically. Are there any sort of parallels or examples that then your clients can sort of draw on to say, okay, the last time we had a a massive supply shock of some kind, here was the response? I mean, is there something out there that we could look at? Not really, because as you also spoke about in the previous segment, this is not like the financial crisis where there's something growing and brewing that can Mm -hmm. potentially become dramatic. This This is important and this is absolutely critical and, 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 and very serious in so many ways. But the nature of this shock is just quite different from what we have seen before. So in that sense, there is no uh, textbook uh, to, and playbook to take out and say, oh, now I know what to do. Yeah. Also because we just don't understand the duration of the shock. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. One thing the coronavirus has done is expose our institutional weaknesses, whether it's politics or healthcare. In his column last Sunday, New York Times columnist and best-selling author Nicholas Kristof expanded upon this idea. He wrote, We must ensure that no one is deterred from seeking help by the costs. The White House and Congress should immediately establish a system to ensure that patients need not pay for coronavirus testing and treatment. We should also ensure paid sick leave. Do we really need to go to a restaurant where a coughing, sneezing food preparer still goes to work out of financial need, he asked? Christoph and his wife Cheryl Wudan sat down with us to talk about the coronavirus and their new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. I mean, I think it exposes weaknesses in the Trump administration, which the political system is pouncing on, but it also exposes larger weaknesses that go back for many decades. I mean, the fact that we now have 27 million Americans who are not insured and don't have ready access to a primary care provider, uh, the fact that the U.S. is pretty much alone in the world and not providing paid medical leave, so that there will indeed be food preparers who, Mm. when they have a cough or a sneeze, they will go in and 
um, jeopardize the health of other people because they don't have the same sick leave that other countries have. Yeah. So, yeah, there are real problems here. Oh, there are real problems. I mean, is there an opportunity here, though, Cheryl, where maybe some of those problems might actually be addressed in a way that in the past we failed to do? Well, that's actually the look, looking at the silver lining, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, there are so many Americans, we, although we have a very uh, low unemployment rate, there are many Americans who just stop looking for work. And so they don't have access to health care, uh, so they, w- they don't even have access to information as much as, you know, um, most of us in the urban areas. People in the rural areas of, of America are really hurting. They are struggling, and if they don't have access to health care as well, uh, they're yeah, this disease, coronavirus, really can, can really hurt a, a large swath of America. And both of you have reported overseas. You've seen how other countries do it. It looks like when you kind of take stock of the different countries that are addressing this, the only countries doing it right, tackling it with a mix of urgency and also transparency, are those smaller ones. Singapore, for instance, receiving high marks for how it's doing it. But it's tiny, Cheryl. It's really not comparable to anything in the U.S. or China. Well, certainly, uh, when we look at what China has done, um, you know, we don't have the same kinds of, you know, what means uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, quarantine people in the way that they do, or even to put up new hospitals in two or three days. Uh, and, you know, here in the U.S., one of the problems is that uh, there are so many people who have fallen outside of the safety net. As we talked about in Tightrope, I mean, there are people who just, you know, don't necessarily even have access to Internet in the rural areas of places like Kentucky or, you know, even in parts of, of Oregon where, where we wrote a lot about in Tightrope. You know, these people just don't have good access to Internet. So how are they getting their information? Right. Maybe just through, you know, one or two, you know, uh, television stations if they watch occasionally. So that's also a big issue. So, but I mean, getting back to the potential solutions, Nick, I mean, I mean, Cheryl, she mentioned sort of what was done uh, in some countries like China and Singapore. Those are very much different societies, not just in terms of their size, but in the way their governments are run and the uh, control they have over their people. There is a sense of civil liberties that we take very seriously here in this nation, where the pushback to something like quarantines, I would think, would be pretty severe. Yeah, and look, yeah. I don't think authoritarian societies right. are models for handling coronavirus. Right. I mean, China did indeed have a pretty robust response after uh, late January. But remember that early on, it uh, punished doctors yeah. for raising the issue. It didn't raise the issue as 5 million people were fleeing Wuhan to the rest of the country and indeed was still holding conferences. So I don't think China is a model of, a, of early response. Iran clearly is not. What you need is reliable, credible leaders who who give the podium to scientists. And I'm afraid we don't particularly do we, follow do we that have model that, either. Uh, well, that's my question. Do we have that? I actually joked. I mean, when, when this first uh, broke out, we sort of wanted to see who was leading the effort. This was before they appointed the Pence. Too, yeah. uh, and we kind of joked, you know, is it an actual doctor or an actual scientist? You know, in past years, that, that might have been a preposterous question. But now you sort of have to ask that. Who is leading the CDC? Who is leading HHS? Yeah. I mean, the CDC is a hugely respected organization yeah. internationally. And I think it still has that respect. One problem, though, is that the public health response is really done locally. So mm-hmm. the CDC has influence, great research. Right. Uh, in this case, I think there's actually among public health professionals some respect for Alex Azar. Um, there is, I'd say, very little respect for Mike Pence in public health, given his attitudes over time toward smoking, not causing cancer, 
toward mishandling of uh, HIV uh, in Indiana, yeah. um, and so on. Scarlett, one of the things that you said earlier about how this uh, coronavirus actually exposes a lot of the faults in society, and that's actually very, um, you know, very true, because if you look at in, in the last three of the four years where we've had a declining life expectancy, and that had a lot to do with deaths of despair related to alcohol deaths and, you know, uh, you know, drug-related deaths and suicides. This is what we write about in Tightrope. But the issue now we are facing is that we may actually, again, uh, come to a situation where we have uh, another uh, wave of deaths related to the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And so life expectancy will, again, the yes. average will fall again. And so, you know, unless we actually take some of these issues that we write about in Tightrope much more seriously, yeah. we are not going to be able to sort of patchwork a solution. Yeah. So, Nick and Cheryl, I want to get your take here of what's left of the Democratic candidates. You have some on the far left and some that are squarely in the middle. The kinds of people that you interview in your book, Tightrope, who do they gravitate towards? I know there are a lot of Trump supporters there, but there are some who are looking for alternatives as well. Would they find any of them in the current lineup of candidates? They actually do uh, support Trump, a lot of them. Uh, the area that we actually anchor the book, uh, anchor Tightrope in, is in Yamhill, Oregon, which is very red. Uh, and part of the reason that they support him is because they feel that the entire system is corrupt and that they just want someone to, they want someone to blow up Washington because they didn't think that anyone was listening to them. And Trump actually spoke to that. He actually says, I am fighting for you. And that's what they want. So if they think that someone like Bernie Sanders will fight for them, then it's possible that they might switch. Well, I guess that's the question then. I mean, how malleable are they in terms of their political allegiances? I mean, they're not sort of the kind of people who maybe say, I'm always a Democrat, I'm always a Republican. They're just going to vote for who they think is going to do the job? So the, the white working class, like the black working class, tends to be socially conservative, mm -hmm. but economically more liberal. And so the black working class overwhelmingly votes Democratic despite its conservative social tendencies. The white working class has mostly voted uh, for conservatives despite its liberal economic tendencies. Mm -hmm. And, but, you, you know, the fact that you have the rise of Trump on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left right. suggests how much pain there is out there and how much dissatisfaction there is with that economy, yeah. even at a time when unemployment is low, when markets have soared, when corporate profits have done so well. A lot of people feel completely left out. And one thing that goes across uh, all political spectrums is this American idea of um, doing it all yourself, pulling yourself up by, by the bootstraps, right? It's the Horatio Alger story where we can like make good, <laughs> and if you work hard enough, good things yeah. will come to you. That, unfortunately, uh, papers over a lot of the problems because there's some institutional problems here that really punish uh, both the working class uh, and the, the poor in a way that no amount of working hard is going to make up for. Well, first of all, that premise of lifting yourself up by the bootstraps just is false because I don't think anybody physically can actually lift themselves and up by the bootstraps. And you write about that in the book. Exactly, because it's just not f physically feasible. And that has overtaken uh, you know, the, the narrative and so that people internalize it and think that if they actually have messed themselves up, then it's their fault and that you know, they, you know, they can't ask for help because it's really their fault. And the government doesn't want to provide help because it's obviously your fault for getting yourself in that situation. Well, that narrative did actually actually you know, really spread to the policymakers, and they think that, no, we shouldn't help. But in fact, when you think about what actually got a lot of people on the West Coast to the West Coast from the East Coast, it was that pioneering spirit, right, cross-country, across America, so that we could actually, you know, um, uh, you know, fend for ourselves. Well, it was a government program, basically the Homestead Act, that gave them 140 acres if they crossed the, uh, crossed the country. 
And that's the kind of nudge that we think the government can still do and provide. Uh, people tend to forget that they actually Except they're going to allow black people to get those under 48. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Absolutely, right. yes. Very, <laughs> very good point. Just to be too. clear, I, I mean, we won't go into the history of the yeah. Homestead Act, but there are a lot of issues with and, that. And yeah. so this is the problem. If something yeah. like the coronavirus yeah. actually does give us an excuse to, act, to, right. to make things whole again, that's worth it. Uh, uh, you know, so when we talk about sort of policy pres prescriptions here, uh, well, you know, one of the phenomenons that we've seen over the past uh, few years, just the recovery from the recession, is the number of people who are coming off the sidelines, entering into the workforce. There are, there's sort of this hidden underclass. that They aren't really counted in the statistics. They don't really show up in the way that we would normally count these people. I guess what brings those people where they have enough confidence to say, I want to look for a job, there's opportunities out, for, out there for me, and I want to actually participate in whatever the economy, whatever this, this economy is. Well, I think that just the fact that it's much easier to get a job now, right. that helps draw them out. Mm -hmm. uh, but we still have the highest rates of suicides uh, in the country that, than we've had since World War II. Mm -hmm. I mean, so something is still very ill there. And people are self-medicating with opioids. Uh, you know, the opioid crisis may you know, abate a little bit because we are focusing on it now. We're mm -hmm. actually using Narcan. We're using all sorts of treatment to, so that they don't necessarily die from overdoses. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is still a lot of pain out there. In fact, some of the surveys that, that uh, we write about you know, say that you know, in the last 30 days, you know, people still have felt pain. You know, you know, on, on a large portion of them. Sure. Nick, you guys uh, offer a lot of prescriptions, a lot of possible solutions, including wage insurance as one possibility. When policymakers read your book, and, and you talk to a big cross section of folks who are influential and make policy, what have they responded to? Is there anything in there that they say, yeah, this this might be possible? This is something that perhaps could get support from both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, actually, there are a number of areas. Um, early childhood education is something that there is increasing bipartisan interest in. And if we think about the things that would make a difference for the kids who I grew up with, we write about in Tightrope, and a quarter of the kids on my old school bus are now gone from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. What would have mattered? Early childhood interventions. Um, Oklahoma, a red state, has a great early childhood program. Mm -hmm. Drug treatment, I mean, it is crazy that only one in 10 Americans right now with a substance abuse problem gets treatment, even though treatment pays for itself many times over. We're still in dealing with the incarceration toolbox rather than the treatment toolbox. Mm -hmm. And I think the jobs uh, front, I mean, I think one thing conservatives kind of got right was the importance of the dignity of jobs, of getting people right. to work. But the solution is not work requirements. It's things like the earned income tax credit that create incentives to bring people back into the labor market. And it's job training. This week, the Democratic primary race winnowed down to a two-man contest with Elizabeth Warren ending her bid for the White House. The contenders are now down to former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. One of the biggest differences between the two candidates is health care. So we spoke about Sanders' Medicare for All proposal with Catherine Baker, dean of the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Catherine formerly served as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors from 2005 to 2007, where she played a leading role in the development of health policy. We started by asking her about what the biggest economic risk of a true single-player system are. There's really two components to the Medicare for All question as I see them. There's the political risk, Okay, people get nervous about the idea that they're going to lose their uh, insurance, which they may uh, like uh, currently under the existing system. And then there's sort of the economic risks. What are the biggest actual economic risks toward, uh, that would, in your view, from shifting to a true single-payer system? 
Well, expanding access to health care for the millions of Americans who don't have it is of vital importance, but moving wholesale to a Medicare for All program would have major implications for all patients' care and for all the health care providers who are currently in the system. If you pay providers a lot less than you're paying them now, which most Medicare for All plans propose, you should expect to see less health care available, and that might lead to shortages. If you reduce co-pays for patients, that's a wonderful thing for increasing access to care, but it also means a lot more demand for health care, some of it of real health importance, some of it less valuable. And those two trends colliding may be very disruptive to access to health care. So when we talk about that disruption, uh, Catherine, I mean, how do you sell this, particularly to a public that already got spooked by Obamacare, whether rightly or wrongly, they should have, and you have a situation now where uh, certain unions have plans that would arguably in their current state actually be better than some of the proposals that are being pushed out there by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warden. Warren, what's the selling point? Well, the mechanism by which you expand coverage to people who don't have it could be very different. One way is to have a Medicare for All plan which really ensures that everybody gets the same health care, but then you need to have a serious discussion about how much health care that is and can we afford gold-plated health insurance for everyone. My worry is that there's so much that modern medicine can do that if everyone has all of the care that might possibly be available, that's more than 100% of GDP. We need to have a more realistic conversation about how much care we want to be sure we guarantee to everyone. And once you have that conversation, maybe the answer isn't Medicare for all. Maybe it's a more basic plan that's available to everyone with other people then able to top up the insurance if they have the resources to do so. Now, that's a pretty uncomfortable conversation to have, too, because that suggests a two-tiered health care system. And I'm not sure that people would feel comfortable with that. So there's some real trade-offs. Yeah, there's always going to be trade-offs. And you talk about realistic conversations. Um, when we try to put numbers to it, it seems like it's almost fruitless to put a number to it to uh, say how much it's going to cost. As a politician, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, what is the best way for them to make the point that this is a necessary um, initiative that requires trade-offs on all sides, yet not scare the public when it comes to how much it'll cost? Well, I'm an economist. I'll put a number on anything. <laughs> and in fact, I think we have to put numbers on these things and pretending that expanding Medicare to all U.S. citizens would somehow pay for itself is very misleading. I think we have to be realistic about the way these things get paid for. And people hang a lot of hope on administrative savings. And certainly there's a lot of scope for improving the administrative efficiency of our system. But I don't think there's nearly enough money there to pay for for a gold-plated plan for everyone. So we have to think about whether then you pay for it by reducing how much you pay providers, and that might lead to shortages, as I mentioned, whether you introduce more co-payments for patients to try to get uh, patients steered towards high-value care but not using care that's of lower value. That's something that people have disavowed. So I don't think that there is a realistic way to say that a Medicare for All plan would not result in massive increase in taxes. I think it would, and the discussion we need to have is whether that's worth it and whether that's our preferred way to expand coverage to people who don't have enough right now. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television. 
and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.